0: Survivors, it's Adrian. I'm here for something a little different than usual. Autumn is on a much-deserved vacation with her family, and in her absence, we've put together an episode about listening. Listening across differences, listening across power imbalances, listening across barriers that seem impossible to cross, listening within ourselves for how we need to transform ourselves to transform the world. Today's episode is in three parts and contains some of my writing as well as a story featuring one of my favorite people, Sterling Tolles. Sterling is one of the most magical, spiritual teaching, normal, magical artist people that I've ever met in my life. He's one of the reasons I moved to Detroit and I think he has brilliance for you. So part one, this is a word for white people, and it's a piece that I originally wrote for my blog, Brown.net. A word for white people in two parts. Part one, what a time to be alive. Right now, we are in a fast river together. Every day, there are changes that seemed unimaginable until they occurred. If you are a white person, this is a time of intentionally relinquishing power or having it pulled out from under you. I know it seems fast and everywhere, but it's actually not a rapids, not a waterfall, not a tsunami. Most people who aren't white have in our lineages or lived experiences the whiplash of much more drastic changes, placed upon us by your ancestors. Being snatched from home and shipped into slavery, weighed and measured, worked to death, lynched daily by authorities, reminded that our lives are expendable at any moment, and yes, this is true even right now, hence Black Lives Matter and defund the police. Or, being displaced from the land we were given instructions to love and care for, then raped, killed, or reprogrammed. Or, being burnt up by new weapons your ancestors created to speed colonization or domination. Being cast as the savages or terrorists in their worldview, in a way that stuck to us, even outside the stage of their minds, stuck in your minds, such that it's nearly impossible for you to even see it without cultural ice buckets poured on the delusion. Your ancestors did not fight fair, and they didn't teach you to be in right relationship with anyone. They didn't give our ancestors time to wonder, ask for help, course correct, negotiate. This is why some say you should be grateful we seek justice, equality, and our humanity versus revenge. Because right now, after years of physical, intellectual, and cultural warfare on peoples who were different from white, you have an opportunity to leap forward, dive into this river of change, rather than be deluged and drowned in it. The time for denial is over. You were not raised in a secret mountaintop retreat, disconnected from the world. You haven't existed with no contact for over 400 years. So we know you see and know what is going on and you're scared, saddened, defensive, guilty, and unsure of who to be if you aren't the default superior. So you make choices towards or away from or against your own highest self. When you say, but don't all lives matter? We hear, I refuse to acknowledge the harm I have caused you by benefiting from false constructs of supremacy. I cannot prioritize your pain over my privilege. When you say, Okay, okay, so teach me. We hear, My time and needs continue to be more important than yours. I refuse to Google and read. I demand your labor. When you say, But what do I do? It sounds like procrastination because we have told you a million things. We'll put a link in the show notes. Here are ways I recommend for diving into this river. Learn to say and mean, I am sorry for the impact of my white supremacy. Don't post it on the internet. Say it from your heart and gut directly to people you've impacted especially in situations where you were or are in positions of leadership or authority. And then, and this is important, shift your behavior so you never need to give that apology again. Riffing off a of fellow nerd Albert Einstein, practicing white supremacy and expecting a different outcome than race war is one definition of collective insanity. I don't want the apology without the shifts in behavior, policy, and access to power without the end of the monsoon of constant harm. Commit to doing your own work without seeking accolades. Yes, some people of color will be welcoming, will even celebrate what you do. I am sometimes moved to tears when I see how acts of white people being kind to black people touch my black southern father, who just never thought he would see that. And, but... Many people of color won't clap because the point of this moment is decentering whiteness in the story of humanity. That means not centering white course correction with the attention we give a baby's first steps. We won't patronize you for rejoining a collective path. And that should be good news. Don't revert to supremacy under pressure. It breaks trust. If you are told you are practicing white supremacy, consider that we see and feel things that you do not because they're weaponized against us, weighted against us, scarring us, limiting us. We aren't generalizing or reducing you. We are protecting our valuable lives, our vulnerable lives. Redistribute resources. Not as charity which is just another way to assuage the conscience of privilege. Redistribute money, leadership positions, decision-making power, land, time in meetings, visionary space, relationships with philanthropy, speaking opportunities, press attention, healthcare benefits. If you can measure it, you can redistribute the resource. I am taking the time to write to you, to speak to you, because I'm a mixed-race Black woman. I am connected to the same lineages of harm as you, even as I am harmed by them. I am an intimate, familial relationship with white people, and I want those relationships to be honest and accountable. I benefit from how the artifacts of whiteness in my skin, cadence, and cultural shaping make me more visible and comprehensible to you, more human to you. It's a devastating weight to carry, to work to be fully myself, humble and brilliant and messy and great against a delusion of white supremacy so pervasive and invasive that it can grow within each of us without invitation. But just because something alive violates us does not mean we asked for it, does not mean we partner with it, believe it, or even let it live. I, in my wholeness, and working to hold the contradictions of white supremacy responsibly, to weed my own garden, even as I demand and build my and our black power. We all have our work, and none of us can do anyone else's. Part 2. A Variation on Paying Attention to White People In the spirit of what you pay attention to grows, I want to bring more attention to the white people who are in my life, none by accident, none tolerated, each beloved and cultivated. Not everyone has an experience of white people who love, learn with, and follow them. I want to practice in this moment attending to them as much as or more than we attend to the swarm of Karens and Beckys and Donalds and other haters. I do not believe whiteness will just disappear in shame, or that white people committed to race and other offenses to science and God will self-segregate in a way that leaves the rest of us and the planet safe. So I must believe that something else can emerge, is emerging, even if it is still small and rare. And my belief is met by the presence, felt much more than spoken, of white people who are blessings, peers. Beloveds, comrades, self-responsible humans. I am blessed by my mother. She gave up everything she'd been raised in, family and resources, when she realized she was in love with my father, my black father. She began unlearning racism without training, decolonization curricula, language monitors. She began her unlearning in relationship, both as wife and as mother. She was the one who came storming into classrooms challenging our racist teachers. She has taken our sides and had our backs and has our backs and asserts our brilliance at every turn. She doesn't claim to get it right. She keeps leaning in and learning with love. She makes me consider that something can shift deep within you when you birth a black child or three. I'm not interested in denying that, ridiculing that, making it smaller than what it is. I am blessed by those in my southern white family who reach out to let me know they love me and listen hungrily for suggestions for what they can do to be in solidarity, to raise their kids to see beyond the racism they're all raised to swim in. They do help to offset the pain of knowing that there are white people related to me by blood who watched me be a black child and then chose to vote for the Klan's favorite president, Trump. I am blessed by the anti-racist white people in my inner friend circle. Instead of perfection, these friends are committed to practice, to asking questions and really listening to the answers, to doing their own work and not putting it on me, to releasing rigid control and seeing that there are many ways to be productive and efficient, to growing ease in taking leadership from black people, from people of color, and then diving in deep with other white people and decentering themselves in their fields and fucking up and then letting it grow them rather than making them performative or bitter. They do most of their race work elsewhere, and yet it is palpable to me without feeling like guilt, charity, pity, or other power over emotions. I have had a white partner in the past. And though I revel and thrive in black love now, when I look at movement, I actually see a huge number of leaders with white partners, white family, white community, sometimes claimed, sometimes quietly kept off screen. I think we need to bring more attention to why those people get to be in our lives, why any white person gets the privilege of being in intimate space with those who have experienced enough ancestral harm from white people to stay away forever. Attend not in a carrot stick way, not denying your humanity, not cheerleading what you are already just supposed to do, but simply to acknowledge that it is work. It isn't a shift at the level of slogan, political correctness, or press release, though those cultural quakes do soften the soil for new, organic infrastructures of anti-racist life to take root. It is deeply personal work to relinquish white supremacy, and it helps me if I think of the white people in my life, not as exceptional, but just a few steps ahead in their work. Think of those Confederate statues coming down. All my roots are Southern. Those statues seem like they'd always been there and always would be, and then slowly, the realization that they were celebrating the worst of humanity, the plantation Hitlers, that that's what white supremacy is really about. Now, it feels inevitable that we are pulling down the symbols, while inside everyone's mind we are pulling down the ideas of racial supremacy. But then there's the gap, the statue's empty base, the place where that idea once seemed right, but now there's just the wound, the world shaped around the absence of a clear way of being. I just purchased the bust of a black man head full of amethyst from Damon Davis. And last year, I visited the lynching museum full of statues to honor the murdered. Both of these works are perfect, and I wish they were everywhere, so I am tempted to make a case for replacing the statues with black heroes and myths. And martyrs. But I can also see the case for no replacement statues in our town squares or our mines. We live in a beautiful, interconnected world that needs our attention. Maybe if we drop the performance of celebrating difference, we can make it possible to actually survive difference. It must be possible. We must make it possible. Or else we will always be in a position of demand or counter-policing or rage. I want us to use this current, justified rage to shape demands that take the labor and danger off of us so that our children and our grandchildren don't have to live such taut, hurt, and angry lives. At the same time, I want us to contend for power and notice who truly invites that power. That is the common trait of every white person, every person I allow into my life in a meaningful way. There is a mutual invitation. Both of us, in our power and truest selves, are invited into every space. So, for the white people walking this path with me, thank y'all for keeping me faithful when a mass perspective on whiteness still feels pretty hopeless. Thank you for being willing to be visible, or not. Thank you for not waiting for praise as you unlearn the supremacy you were programmed to practice, and for not reacting personally to the righteous rage and shifting boundaries required to move through this collective transition. Thank you for offering support instead of demanding more labor. Mary Hooks has articulated a mandate for Black people in this time to avenge the suffering of our ancestors, earn the respect of future generations, and be willing to be transformed in the service of the work. The white people in my life must align with that mandate. Put your lifetime in service of undoing the work of your ancestors, earning the respect of future generations, and being willing to be transformed in the service of the work. Next up is a little radio play featuring my friend, real-life bodhisattva, as I mentioned before, Sterling. Our producer, Zach, made this piece for his daily podcast called The Best Advice Show, where every weekday he talks to someone different, offering a humble, sometimes zany, often profound piece of advice. All this week, he's doing a series on listening advice, which, by the way... Autumn contributed to Small World. You should definitely check out her advice. And he spoke to Sterling about the immaculate way that he moves through the world and how he approaches listening. Check this out. A quick warning. The following episode has some explicit language.
1: For me, I've always looked at people as another iteration of myself, you know, more than likely I would be them if I had experienced love in the same way.
0: (laughs) In the in the same way that they did,
1: right, right. I I don't really see people as being like other. I'm looking at me, you know, and I never see my peace or my joy or my inspiration as being independent. Like their well being matters for me to experience well being for myself. Mm. The people that we reject are the people that we don't want to see what they represent within ourselves, (laughs) you know? (laughs) I was walking up Connor, actually, and I'm walking past this guy, and I smile and say, hey, and he's like, why the fuck you smiling at me? Because it's good to see you, and he's like, you don't know me. You don't know me, motherfucker. Motherfucker, I'll kill you, motherfucker kill you motherfucker i don't keep walking i just stop and just let him, him say everything I'm not a joke. You hear what i said motherfucker i said i'll kill you motherfucker and he he was like why are you still standing here and i'm like because i'm i'm listening to you you know why are you listening to me because man i care about you bro like i don't i don't have to to know you like love is not about knowledge And if I love you based on what I know of you, to me, that's me loving you based on condition. And without condition, you are deserving of of love. And even if you don't receive it, it's necessary for myself to receive you in that way because my vitality lives in the acknowledgement of the fact that you're a part of me. So I'm doing this for me also. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: And he hugs me. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, man. I, j- I just been having a rough time. It's been a bad day. There's just a lot of bullshit going on. Look, look, my name is- What's your name? My name is Sterling. He's like, You alright, Sterling? Look, they know me around this neighborhood. If you ever need anything, I got you, man. I got you. And uh, that was that. You know, it's it's like you can see the inequities in how someone was loved by the way they treat people. I'm not going to condemn a plant for being brown. You know what I'm saying? You know, it had the ability to be green. (laughs) It had the ability to be healthy. So, if I have the ability to nurture it, I'm going to nurture it. You know. Can you uh, introduce yourself?
0: Tell me who you are and and what you are.
1: My name is Sterling Tolls and I am you. You.
0: (laughs) 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 That was listening with Sterling from the best advice show. You can hear that show, like I said, every day, wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, the last element of today's show is another piece that I wrote. It's actually a letter. It's called Dear Men, and it's about relinquishing the patriarchy. It feels very connected to these other two pieces. Dear Men. This is mostly a note to straight, cis men, but also includes trans men, queer men, and all who participate in masculinity. If you see yourself in these words, this is a love note to you. Patriarchy, the system of society or government in which men hold the power and women are excluded from it, is collapsing. And it's time for you, too, to give it up to get yourself out. It won't be easy. I don't believe total revolution or liberation happens in one generation, but I know from my own life and many lives I have witnessed and accompanied that it is absolutely possible in your lifetime, in a generation, to personally relinquish an unjust ideology, to begin to practice a more evolved way of being. When enough of us relinquish injustices that only pretend to benefit us, We tip society towards justice. In my life, I have been homophobic, transphobic, classist, ableist, and yes, patriarchal. And I have been able to turn and face each of those parts of myself to consider that what I know to be right might, in fact, be wrong, is wrong. I'm wrong. But right or more precisely right relationship is available to me what i have learned is that in the u.s normal is still understood as a white u.s citizen who has degrees is or is married to a cis male straight and able-bodied there are no people i should fear or disregard or think are lesser because they were born outside of some false concept of normal. The only people I've ever truly needed to fear are those who believe they are superior to me and others. And the only part of me that is truly monstrous is the part that has been trained to convince me that I am superior to anyone else. Superior because of proximity to that false norm. I'm American-born, light-skinned, college-educated, cis, briefly able-bodied, etc. The pain I have caused others in my life has been born of these false superiorities which made me believe I deserved more of the goodness of existence for doing less physical, mental, or emotional work. Now I'm trying every day to do my share to carry my portion of miracle and suffering, to labor fairly, to examine my privileges, and to dismantle the largest unjust systems in this world with my choices and behaviors. In order to do this work, I've had to learn to listen to things I didn't wanna hear and couldn't believe. Now, I am listening to so many women in my life navigate the fall of patriarchy. They are exhausted, scared, lonely, rushed. So many of these women have confided in me. I wish sexuality was a choice. If I could choose to be with a woman, I would in a heartbeat. I do not want to imply here that women are above patriarchy or other disease, or in any way minimize the complexities of queer love. But the frequency with which I have heard this from straight women speaks to a particular desperation, heartbreak, and confusion about how to be met in intimate relationship in this lifetime. There are women who are straight or mostly straight, and I'm watching them battle their way out of patriarchy only to resign themselves to either painful compromise or dignified solitude. So I wanna offer here a brief primer for men who want intimacy, informed by emergent strategy and pleasure activism, and by life. This is for men who don't want to be alone, who want to be part of communities, who don't want to be a burden to humanity, who want to be trustworthy, who don't want to be assholes and fuckboys and distant dads, but can't see how they are perpetuating patriarchy. This is for men who want to know love in their lives. If a woman tells you she is tired, that the dynamic of labor between you is imbalanced, It means you have been carried without realizing or honoring it. In naming this, she is reaching for interdependence with you. We are in a set of transition generations, most of us with mothers who were taught to keep their labor out of sight. This means many men grew up in households where the full-time work of managing home was intentionally invisible. This is especially true if you had a father. You would come home from school, see your father coming home from work out in the world, see your mother make a meal and serve it with a smile on. Then she would clean the dishes while your father watched TV and you did homework. Maybe you did one chore like cleaning your own room or taking out the garbage you'd helped create. You may have learned to do these chores as if they were a rare favor to your mother rather than a reasonable expectation for a human that makes messes and produces waste as a part of life. If you grew up with a single mother, you may have been brought into more of this work helping out your mom, but a good number of you got the benefit of a mother who was trying to cover the ground of both mother and father, guilty in some way for not being able to keep a family together. She may have coddled you even more to make up for what society was telling her was her failure. What you most likely didn't see, or saw but didn't register as crucial labor, was how the laundry, cleaning, fixing, gardening, grocery and clothes, and all other shopping, mailing, mending, financial management, and planning took place, and how hard and necessary that work is. I have seen a number of relationships where a man takes on one or two of these areas of crucial labor and thinks things are balanced. I have seen a number of situations in which men think the work of caring for the children they co created is babysitting or providing childcare, briefly inhabiting a role that primarily belongs to a woman co-parent. I've also seen how often, when men are left even briefly with labor that women regularly do, they are quickly overwhelmed. The results range from neglect, the home is dirty, the kid is sitting in a poopy diaper, the sick wife is hungry, etc., to full-out adult male tantrums, to paraphrase, you didn't even thank me for doing the things you do every day. Which brings me to my next point. If a woman tells you you are scaring her, you are. And you have been. It usually takes us a while to gather the words of our fear. She is saying this because something in your behavior has become physically or emotionally unsafe. Domestic violence isn't always a bruised eye. There are so many ways to terrorize an intimate Sometimes the fear is the only signal to a woman that she is in a dangerous situation. There are some fears we can't trick ourselves out of even if we love y'all. I have witnessed men who I thought knew better in states of road rage, alcohol-induced rage, property destruction, gaslighting, manipulation intended to make their female partners feel crazy and physical intimidation. If this is what they do in front of a witness, I know it's worse when they have no concern of being seen. I have seen men endangering their children in these moments. I've heard stories of men grabbing, hitting, pushing against a wall and giving silent treatment for days to their woman partners and their children. Men, you must learn to be responsible for your own feelings and actions. And it's difficult for a number of reasons most of which add up to codependence training. Most men expect to be mothered by women they get involved with. Here are some of the reasons why men's default relational approach is codependency. You aren't encouraged to feel your feelings. In fact, the opposite is the case. You are told it isn't manly to cry, to need comfort, to feel longing. You are ridiculed for emotions that aren't weaponized, for gentleness, for what is categorized as feminine behavior. You aren't encouraged to have friends. Activity bros are different. You may have guys you go play ball with or drink with. You may even have men you complain to, perhaps even cliched complaints about the demands women are making of you to grow or show up. But at a certain age, all humans need mirrors, witnesses, people they can trust to hear their lives to cut through any victim narrative and help them pivot away from behaviors that harm themselves and others that's literally what friends are for women are actively doing this for each other right now witnessing each other reaching for our own lives holding each other's hands as we walk towards our power y'all need to get in right relationship you aren't encouraged to get professional help again Many of you think it's only crazy people or women who seek professional help. So you either refuse to see the therapist or healers who could support your growing up, or you wait until it's so late that you've already built a mountain of harm on top of the person who has been carrying your emotional load in addition to her own. You end up unhinged, unstable, not rooted in reality. In many ways, acting out the definition of what people call crazy, In my mediations, facilitation, and friendships, I've learned that roughly everyone has the potential to be crazy, quote-unquote. The difference in how much negative impact our crazy has on ourselves and others is directly related to who has adequate support structures and rigorous practices when the storms of adulthood come, and who doesn't. Therapy, friends, meditation, repeat. Finally, not enough of the people who offer professional help recognize patriarchy as a type of insanity. I will say it as clearly as I can. Believing that masculinity is a factor of mental, physical, emotional, economic, or other superiority that results in doing less labor and having more power is disease. Therapists and healers can be of best service when they recognize this and stop normalizing patriarchal expectations especially with men who carry other socially acceptable diseases, such as white supremacy or extreme wealth. Next, if a woman tells you she needs boundaries, step back immediately and listen to her. Respect the line she draws between you. If she needs space from you, don't antagonize her. Consider offering her space and silence. This can be very hard for men who are trained to pursue and capture women. Seeing women as human, not prey, can be a lifelong journey for men unlearning patriarchy, unlearning woman as belonging, or woman as prize. It's also hard for men whose default relationship position is, as mentioned, codependency. I have been shocked at the number of processes I have witnessed and or supported where men In absence of friends or professional support, expect the women they've worn down and disrespected and sometimes abused to also be their primary support through breakdowns, breakups, new adventures, and figuring out how to adult. In a word, she can't help you with that. She's tired, she's scared, and she needs her own space to heal. It is a time for fractal accountability. Each unit of masculinity has to heal. To become part of a healed identity you must a recognize that you are part of a seductive and dying system of holding imbalance privilege b opt out even when everything in your system is screaming double down and control her and c be willing to understand that patriarchy is a million small choices every day to shirk responsibility to assume power you haven't earned to be mothered by your partners you must learn to see those choices and add more options into your life. The good news is there are practices that work. Here are steps I guarantee will help you to relinquish patriarchy. One, recognize that as a man, you are a part of patriarchy. Even if you have made some effort to break out of it, the system or insanity of patriarchy is still there for you to fall back into under pressure or duress. Two, Be particularly vigilant about your masculinity growing toxic in your 30 to 50 age range. Those are the years for many of us where the weight of adulting gets real and feels too heavy, and the dreams we had for our lives may not be coming true, hence the pattern of midlife crises. This is when men can become strangers to the women who trust them. Yes, change is constant, and we all deserve space to change. None of us deserve a pass to change in ways that make us more harmful to those with less systemic power than we have, especially not those who have carried us. 3. Don't get into language supremacy or who read the most feminist supremacy. Don't think that you are better than other men because you know the language of patriarchy, feminism, and other isms. It's the overcharged, competitive nature, the desire to be better than, the inappropriate topping itself that is toxic. Four, in practice, release any belief that your mind will liberate you from patriarchy. The change required now is not something you can learn or do with your mind alone. It is something you must practice with your body, emotions, soul. Only consistent practice will rewire your mind and liberate your life. Five, practice trusting the women in your life to see what you cannot see. Seek, wrestle with, trust, and apply their feedback. Six, practice shared labor. Ask to take on tasks and change the dynamic of labor because you want to and or you should. Not as if you are relieving her of a burden or helping her out. Don't ask her how to do these things. She doesn't just magically know. She has long worked at learning and creating all of this. 7. Practice sitting in groups with other men. A group of two is a fine and valiant beginning. And speak of feelings. Do not offer solutions or try to cheer each other up. Invite the feelings as they are. Sadness, heartbreak, abandonment, fear, trauma from the process of masculinization. Be there for each other. Build friendships of radical honesty. Eight, practice taking action together. Go to marches to protect women's rights. Volunteer to hold the line at abortion clinics. Intervene on observed acts of misogyny and patriarchy in private and public. Nine, practice finding something other than women to blame for your feelings. Consider that your own behavior might be responsible. For the hardships you are currently experiencing 10 practice listening to the truth ask the women in your life how they have survived you this is not to say that all women are innocent or never abusive controlling unfair or harmful it is to say that women have most often engaged in those strategies in order to navigate staying safe and sane inside of patriarchy ask her How she carried that emotional, economic, child-rearing, home management, and or fear burden. 11. Practice equality in the workplace. If you are offered a raise, ask who else is getting one. Share your salary information with women colleagues so they can know if they are underpaid. If you advocate for a raise, advocate for women's raises too. If you're in a position to make those decisions about hiring and pay, Never ask how much someone was paid in their last job. Pay them relative to those around them. 12. Make a list of things you believe you are owed by the world. If there's anything you think you are owed that others are not, get curious about that. Begin to release that way of thinking. You deserve dignity, belonging, and safety. You deserve love, community, respect. You deserve pleasure and joy, not at the expense of half the world, but alongside us. Thirteen, seek professional help. Require that your therapist and or healers identify as feminists. This doesn't mean that they are women. This simply means that they believe in the equality of men and women. Not the sameness, but the equality. No sex is superior or inferior. Fourteen, read. I recommend The Will to Change, Men, Masculinity, and Love by Bell Hooks. Feminism is for Everybody, Passionate Politics, also by Bell Hooks. The Combahee River Statement, Men Explain Things to Me by Rebecca Solnit. And Daring Greatly, How the Courage to be Vulnerable Transforms the Way We Live, Love, and Parent and Lead by Brene Brown. Men Do those things even if you think you're already doing it and think you already know all of this and think you are already all right. All of us have much to learn and to listen. The fall of patriarchy is inevitable. It is me too. It is time's up. It is your turn specifically to lead by transforming yourself into the kind of man who always feels safe to women and children. Those are the men who will be allowed into the future. This is your invitation. I wanna honor here that this piece was shaped by several of my goddess friends and my woes. And if you look at the piece on the blog, you can see the starred statements where their influence was really helpful. There's also a link in the original blog, which we will include in the show post of resources to help you navigate this work. That's it, beloved survivors. Thanks, as always, for listening. Autumn and I will be back in the fall with a series of conversations we're so excited to share with you. In the meantime, watch our feed for more guest podcasts throughout the rest of the summer. And in case you haven't noticed yet, I'm hosting another podcast with the inimitable Toshi Reagan called Octavia's Parables. Every week, we break down and love through a chapter of Octavia Butler's sacred text, The Parable of the Sower, and then we're going to do the Parable of the Talents. We're so grateful for your ongoing support of this show. If you want to support us financially, you can do so on our Patreon. There's a link to it in our show notes, Into the World Show. Another incredibly helpful thing you can do is rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts if that's how you listen. We love you.